Oh God, what the choir just sang, that is the exclamation of our heart that we wish to send with them to your throne room. Alleluia. You reign. The universe, this little world, all under your loving and compassionate control. On this last Sabbath, before you send us to all points on the compass, one more word of hope we humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Let me read to you what happened one Sunday afternoon in one of Africa's most sprawling slums, the Kibera slum of Nairobi, Kenya. It happened to an American visitor named Brian Fickert. He tells a story. One Sunday, I was walking with a staff member through one of Africa's largest slums, the massive Kibera slum of Nairobi. The conditions were simply inhumane. People lived in shacks constructed out of cardboard boxes. Foul smells gushed out of open ditches carrying human and animal excrement. I had a hard time keeping my balance as I continually slipped on oozy brown substances that I hoped were mud but feared were something else. Children picked through garbage dumps looking for anything of value. As we walked deeper and deeper into the slum, my sense of despair increased. This place is completely God-forsaken. I thought to myself, then to my amazement, right there among the dung, I heard the sound of a familiar hymn. There must be Western missionaries conducting an op- open-air service in here. I thought to myself, as we turned the corner, my eyes landed on the shack from which the music bellowed. Every Sunday, 30 slum dwellers crammed into this 10 by 20 foot sanctuary to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The church was made out of cardboard boxes that had been opened up and stapled to studs. It wasn't pretty, but it was a church, a church made up of some of the poorest people on earth. When we arrived at the church, I was immediately asked to preach the sermon. As a good Presbyterian, I quickly jotted down some notes about the sovereignty of God and was looking forward to teaching this congregation the historic doctrines of the Reformation. But before the sermon began, the service included a time of sharing and prayer. I listened as some of the poorest people on the planet cried out to God, Jehovah Jireh. Please heal my son as he is going blind. Merciful Lord, please protect me when I go home today, for my husband always beats me. Sovereign King, please provide my children with enough food today as they are hungry. As I listened to these people praying to be able to live another day, I thought about my ample salary, my life insurance policy, my health insurance, my two cars, my house, etc., I realized I do not really trust in God's sovereignty on a daily basis as I have sufficient buffers in place to shield me from most economic shocks. I realized that when these folks pray the fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, 
Their minds do not wander as mine so often does. I realized that while I have sufficient education and training to deliver a sermon on God's sovereignty with no forewarning, these slum dwellers were trusting in God's sovereignty just to get them through the day. And I realized that these people had a far deeper intimacy with God than I probably will ever have in my entire life. End quote. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. This time, read it with me. Open your Bible to Jeremiah 29. These unforgettable words, chasing hope, the miniseries that ends today. Here is hope embedded in words I hope you'll never forget for the rest of your life. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. I'm in the NIV. Whatever you're in is fine with me. Words are on the screen. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. A year ago, I read Walter Brueggemann's disturbing book entitled The Prophetic Imagination. In it, he speaks about hope, what we just considered in this line of Scripture. These are his words on the screen. The task of prophetic imagination and ministry is to bring to public expression those very hopes and yearnings that have been denied so long and suppressed so deeply that we no longer know they are there, end quote. Take, for example, the story we just read, these, these slum dwellers in that massive Kibera slum who 24-7 are faced with the daunting task of embracing a hope that seems utterly illogical, if not certainly impossible. I mean, please, how can you hope for a land that is fairer than day and by faith we can see it afar? How can you hope for everything in heaven when you can't possibly hope for anything on earth? How can you hope for material contentment when your road is paved with the brown ooze of excrement and your shanty is little more than flimsy cardboard taped together? Surely these poor slum-dwelling Christians can be forgiven for abandoning such implausible hope. And yet they keep showing up in that 10 to 20-foot sanctuary, singing their songs and praying their prayers. But of course, Brueggemann's not thinking about them at all. He's thinking about you and me, sophisticated as we are. His words again on the screen. Hope, on the one hand, is an absurdity too embarrassing to speak about, for it flies in the face of all those claims we have been told are facts. <laughs> you, you can't hope that God will heal you. Don't you know that he doesn't heal people anymore? Yo, you can't hope that God will rescue you. Don't you know that morally you are too far gone, buddy? Yo, you can't hope that God will grant you the desires of your heart, that baby you've been praying for, that spouse you've been praying for, that promotion you've been longing for, that money, that dream that you have. Forget it. How did Brueggemann put it? Hope flies in the face of all those claims we have been told are facts, which is why Brueggemann goes on. Hope is refusal to accept the reading of reality, which is the majority's opinion. And one does that only at great political and existential risk. Because to hope, let's be honest, come on, come on, just us friends together, let's be honest, to really hope in the brutal face of the evidence 
in the skeptical face of cynicism is to risk the displeasure of the majority opinion, especially in communities like this one. They're called academic communities where we have been nurtured and tutored on what is politically correct in our circles. Especially when it comes to the viability of this notion that Christ Jesus is soon to return to the earth. Grown-ups don't believe such childish wish fulfillments, do they? Why don't they believe? Why? Because we grown-ups have been made cynical from one too many hopes dashed, one too many wishes unfulfilled, one too many prayers unanswered, and so to shield ourselves from the hurt of disappointment. That's what we do. We close our hearts off to hope. We reject it. Can't be true. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Paul Miller, in his inspiring book, A Praying Life, Connecting with God in a Distracting World, describes our culture this way, Miller on the screen. The movement from naive optimism to cynicism is the new American journey. In naive optimism, we don't need to pray because everything is under control. Everything is possible. In cynicism, we can't pray because everything is out of control. Little is possible. Talking about a lose-lose proposition, this American journey. Either way you cut it, we lose. We who let the culture inform our belief. No wonder hope is so rarely heard from these days. And then Miller tells the story about the writer Dana Tierney and her four-year-old son Luke. Let me read that story to you. In an article in the New York Times magazine, Dana Tierney described how both she and her husband John, a writer for the New York Times, so there are two writers in that marriage, how they rejected their childhood faith. They had their son Luke baptized to placate their families, but that was it. When her husband went to Iraq as an embedded reporter, Dana was understandably fearful. She was surprised at how calm four-year-old Luke was. She assumed it was just youthful naivete until one day they were watching television together and they happened to see the wedding of a soldier who had returned from Iraq. Thinking it wouldn't cause any undue fears in Luke, she figured it was okay for them to watch it together. But then the soldier described his fear of returning to Iraq. Iraq, for just an instant, Dana saw Luke form his hands to pray. When she asked him about it, Luke at first denied it. But after he did it a second time, he confessed that he had been praying. Dana was stunned partly by Luke's faith and partly by how his faith allowed him to be calm and her lack of faith caused her to be fearful. She was also embarrassed that her four-year-old son instinctively knew that praying for his dad was socially inappropriate. Dana asked Luke when he first began to believe in God. I don't know, the little boy said. I've always known he exists. Unlike many of our intellectual gatekeepers, Dana does not patronize believers. In the article, she described how many of her non-religious friends feel free from religion as if they've been liberated from superstition. Not Dana. She feels like she's missing out. 
When she watches her religious friends, she notices that they, and now he's quoting her article, that they have an expansiveness of spirit. When they walk along a stream, they don't just see water falling over rocks. The sight fills them with ecstasy. They see a realm of hope beyond this world. I just see a babbling brook. I don't get the message. How many Danas are there in this world? I don't get the message. Let's put Dana's words. I need, just, I need this to sink into your consciousness here. I'll read them again. She's writing these words. When they, her religious friends, walk along a stream, they don't just see water falling over rocks. The sight fills them with ecstasy. They see a realm of hope beyond this world. Hope, hope, hope. I just see a babbling brook. I don't get the message. I don't get it. So what's the message? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Sounds like something Jesus would say, doesn't it? Have you ever noticed that about Jesus? How oftentimes before performing a miracle, he, he speaks a word of hope into the mind, the psyche, the heart of the suffering one. So that when they lowered from that now broken open roof a swaying pallet that bears the shriveled form of a young man and they drop it down to waist level with Jesus, when he looks into the face of that young man, Jesus does not say, be healed. Instead, Jesus says, be forgiven. You have reason to hope. Amazing. First of all, Jesus infuses divine hope into human hopelessness so that when he meets the the widow of Nain, her heart broken as she follows behind the funeral cortege out of that mountain village into that hillside cemetery. Jesus' first words to her are, don't cry. Hope. He infuses divine hope into human hopelessness so that when Jesus stops in front of the man born blind and he speaks loud enough for the man to hear, as Jesus turns to his disciples, he says, I want to tell you about this man. This has happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus infuses hope into human hopelessness so that when Jairus stops the master and says, listen, listen, you don't have to go now. I just got word our little girl's dead. You don't have to come to our house. Jesus' immediate response to infuse hope into that hopeless heart is, don't be afraid. Only believe. Hope. What a God. What a Savior. Infusing hope into the despair of our cynical human journey. Wow. Paul Miller again on the screen. Cynicism kills hope. The world of the cynic is fixed and immovable. The cynic believes we are swept along by forces greater than we are. Dreaming feels like so much foolishness. Risk becomes intolerable. Prayer feels pointless as if we are talking to the wind. Why set ourselves and God up for failure? But, and oh, I love this, but Jesus is all about hope. 
I know it's late in the morning. I expected to get a little more than that. Let me repeat that line. But Jesus is all about hope. There you go. Welcome up. What is it you're hoping against hope for? What is it you've been dreaming for for so long and are about to let go of that hope? Are you graduating in a few hours? Hmm? What is it you long for? What is it you hope most for? Jesus is all about hope. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. A little girl was kneeling down beside her bed with her daddy for nighttime prayers. And she prayed, Dear Jesus, please come back soon because we have lots of owies and they hurt. I called my mother last Saturday night and I could tell immediately when her husband Bert answered the phone and we visited for a bit and then he gave the phone to mom. I could tell that her strength was ebbing. And I knew I needed to be there at her side. And so I found a ticket late that night, jumped on a plane early Sunday morning, flew to Ontario, California. I had texted my brother Greg and Carrie before leaving that I needed to be with Mom. I'll keep you posted. And they surprised me and both flew in from their cities to be there with Mom. The two days this week with her were just wonderful days, whirlwind. We had to make medical decisions. We had to make financial arrangements to move my mother to Sacramento where Carrie and her husband are pastoring, the Carmichael Church. Wednesday morning, I went to their bedroom to see her. She was in bed. We talked for a bit, and then she spoke words I was totally, totally unprepared for. She said, I don't think I will see you again. And not wanting to accept that thought, I reflexively shot back, Mom, I can fly to Sacramento. I will see you there. But as the days have gone by since Wednesday morning, I've had time to brood over what she said. And I realize that perhaps, maybe, she was saying more than just goodbye. Dear Jesus, please come soon. because we have lots of owies and they hurt. You think we have owies in here? 
What do you think the world is living with today? Non-stop, self-medicated, masked over owies. A world like Dana Tierney that in hopelessness confess, I don't get the message. Why do you have hope? I can't see a thing. How can we go on leaving them in that state of cynical darkness when we found that Jesus is the hope and we've embraced it then why wouldn't we share it with those who don't have it have we been burned too many times by disappointment and we can't dare we might we just might it might not be I don't get the message It's precisely because you and I have friends and neighbors and colleagues and roommates who don't get the message that Hope Trending is coming 25 weeks from today. 25 weeks. It'll be here on this campus. All 24 time zones simultaneously Hope Trending. Nine TED Talk length pieces of reason why Jesus is all about hope. What you need most, he is about. Hope trending. Where your living room or your family room or your dormitory room can be turned into a watch party with your closest friends and people that you've been hoping to bridge to and you're sitting in front of your big screen and the Wi-Fi is bringing it live to you. Hope trending. Why? Because hope is what the world is desperately blind to, but longing for. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Come on, guys. We know how to spell hope. J-E-S-U-S. And because we know, we have to tell we must tell this summer where are you going this summer doesn't matter to me but take Jesus and his hope with you on a plane at a bus stop on a golf course doesn't matter at the workplace be ready there's a heart that says I don't get the message we have this hope and it must be shared to wait another year may be too late For our mothers, for our children, for our roommates, for our colleagues, for our neighbors. Why wait when hope is what they are longing for most of all? Why wait? Jesus is the hope of the world, and we must share him now. Amen. Oh, God. We have known this hope. Many of us have sat in these pews for centuries with the hope locked up inside. Dear Father, unlock our tongues, our minds, our spirits, and our hearts. And with abandon and joy, may we take the truth of Jesus 
who is our hope to this dark and desperate world. We humbly pray in his name. Amen.